الله السميع العليم من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع نفوسنا أبي القاسم المصطفى محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد وعجل فرجه صلى الله عليك يا أبا عبد الله We were discussing uh, the different events that led up to Ashura taking place in the 50 years after the demise of the Holy Prophet We've put behind us about four um, of those events or those contributing elements to Ashura taking place. Whether they were deliberate or not, as I've said again and again, it's irrelevant. We just want to see, according to the Shia school of thought, what were those main things that contributed to the massacre of Ashura taking place? It was at least, and to say the least, some of the mistakes of the Ummah in the beginning um, that allowed enemies of Islam like the Banu Umayyah and the Banu Sufyan and Banu Marwan to take power and allowing them to do what they needed to do and what they wanted to do in regards to Islam and the Muslimin. The first of those uh, events uh, being the choosing and the bay'ah of uh, the first Khalifa, then the second Khalifa, and then the relationship that the Khilafa had with a person like Muawiyah, who was of the Tulaqa, when there were others who could have been in charge of Sham, um, yet he gets chosen to, do the, to take care of this task, and slowly he builds his own little mini empire in the lands of Sham, uh, in that strategic part of the Muslim empire. And then after that, the third Khalifa getting chosen in that council of six individuals who according to Amir al-Mu'mineen were not equal to each other. But that council made it seem like they are equal and they all have an equal vote in deciding who the next Khalifa is going to be. In all of these cases, the least that happens is brothers and sisters, that the Khilafah, the power and authority does not end up in the hands of the one it's supposed to end up in. But rather, it ends up somewhere else. Now, does it necessarily end up in the wrong hands? We said not necessarily, but that is the first step of power falling into the wrong hands. To take it away from the rightful owner of that power and authority, once again, according to the Shia school of thought, we want to speak about another important incident and that is the after the third Khalifa came to power and now within this Khilafah of his the Bani Umayyah become, are, are becoming more and more in charge and he represents Bani Umayyah to an extent Bani Umayyah in its entirety of course not the Bani Sufyan not the Bani Marwan of Bani Umayyah but at the end of the day the third Khalifa was of the Bani Umayyah. And when you are, when you do belong to a clan and tribe that big, then you will have relatives, you will have friends that you are uh, close to, that you are, that you share a, a very special relationship with. And so eventually, and especially when you have the power that you do as Khalifa, more and more of your relatives are gonna come around you and surround you. And so this is what happens in the 12 years of the Khilafah of the third Khalifa. Now, as I said in our last lecture, that 
what happens is, what you have is that there is an assassination of this third Khalifa that takes place. And inshallah we'll get to the significance and magnitude of this incident um, probably in our ensuing lecture. To, to, what I want to speak about today is what led to the assassination of the third Khalifa. What we find in history is that yes, he is that the, um, where the Khilafah resided and where the Khalifa was living was surrounded by a bunch of people and eventually they got in and they assassinated the third Khalifa. This is what we hear and what we read. But the question is, why would such a thing take place? We don't have this with the second Khalifa, we don't have this with the first Khalifa. This happened with the third Khalifa. Is it just that, you know, uh, there's a bunch of people out there that are evil, that are thugs, that want to uh, attack Islam and destroy Islam. Is that what's going on? What is it? These people who, inshallah, we'll talk about later, um, who came from uh, different parts of the Muslim uh, lands, such as Egypt and other places, what were they after? Why were they there? I mean, you don't come all this way just to cause problems. Did they have an agenda? What's going on? There are different... Uh, opinions here, and that's what I will share, inshallah, in, as I said, in our ensuing lecture, not, t not today's lecture. But to get to that point and to understand things, um, from the Shi'i perspective at least, and the Shi'i perspective, when I say it, it doesn't mean that every, no non-Shi'a believe in this perspective, no. But this is mainstream Shi'i history, and also you'll find it in a lot of other uh, moderate, I would say, um, schools of thought that are not Shia. And when I say moderate, what I mean by moderate here is the ones who, of course, they revere all of the Sahaba of Rasulullah They revere all of them, but they, it's not that they will, they will say everything they did is okay, you know? Or that even if they made mistakes, they are totally off the hook. No, there are of, the, of, of schools of thought that are not Shia uh, who will... Uh, believe that, yeah, there were mistakes that were made. And so we want to talk about these mistakes. Now the Shi'i school of thought will say, yeah, it's because of these mistakes that these issues took, that the assassination of Uthman took, took place. And if you, it's interesting that we're going to be dedicating two lectures to this, because as I said um, yesterday, that our, <laughs> out of all of the events in this timeline, in this 50 year period, one of the most significant ones is, and not just the 50 years that led up to Ashura, even after Ashura, is the assassination of Uthman, the third Khalifa. So we need to get to know about this a little bit, what each side says in this regard, and how this contributes to the problem of Ashura taking place years later. So I have here about three or four of some of the things that they say um, that, were, that happened during the time of the third Khalifa, that really pushed people to the edge. Really, the people got fed up and they just couldn't take it anymore. And they noticed that nothing is taking place either. No, no one's trying to fix anything. The third Khalifa doesn't seem too interested and keen on fixing things up either. And so this is when, it's, it's, it's when things like this happen, that people have no choice. They say, no justice, no peace, kind of, that kind of thing. So we want to talk about these some of them, some of that which um, contributed to uh, eventually the third Khalifa being assassinated. 
we have number one I want to talk about is some of the laws of God and some of those who didn't care about God's law and God's laws and disrespected God's laws, how they were dealt with during this time period of the third Khalifa. We want to talk about how unqualified individuals were put in different positions of power uh, as well. Just a few examples. How some companions were expelled from uh, Medina, for example, and other places maybe um, during this time period. And also finally talk about a little bit about uh, issues of wealth and the public treasury, the Baytul Mal, and some of the corruption that was there as well. Just to show how things went downhill during the time of the third Khalifa. Now when I say they went downhill, why do I say that? It's because when you go, even if you go online, even if you search on YouTube, watch some lectures in, in Arabic or maybe in English too, I don't know, but in Arabic definitely, you will find that uh, even scholars who once again are a little more uh, flexible when it comes to the Sahaba, they'll say that yes, we concede that the first six years of the third Khalifa's reign weren't too bad. But it's the second six years, or in the second half of his Khilafah that really things got out of control and mistakes were made. So those are some of the things that we want to talk about tonight. And if we're talking about them, uh, they're mostly you'll find them um, at a much higher level happening in that second half of the third Khalifa's lifetime, of, of his Khilafah, excuse me, and reign. So let's talk about the first one. For example, the laws of Allah are very important, brothers and sisters. Everyone knows this. And the ones who respect God's laws, they are respected. But then there are some who disrespect God's laws. And sometimes there are laws of God that are set in stone. They're, they're, they're so black and white that there's no way to justify. There's no way to go get around them. And so when someone commits something like that, it is very, uh, it is very reproachable. And so what we find is that there are people that are related to the third Khalifa who are committing certain acts, but then they are also put in positions of power as well. This is different than just not being qualified. Yes, sometimes you're a good person, but you're not qualified. Sometimes you're a good person, you make mistakes. Even in Nahjul Balagha, there's a letter that Amir al-Mu'mineen writes to Kumail bin Ziyad, his companion, who was a governor, and the Imam had given him some authority somewhere. The Imam scolds him because of mistakes. Yeah, so it's not always the case that if you're a good person, you're fit for a certain job necessarily. You might make mistakes, but sometimes those mistakes, yes, you get scolded by your superior, and then you try to fix them. Sometimes they're just inexcusable. So the famous story that most of you probably heard of Walid bin Uqbah, not to be mistaken with Walid bin Utbah. Sometimes these two are mistaken. Walid bin Utbah is the one who was the governor of Medina during Imam Hussein's time and tried to get bay'ah from him. Walid bin Uqbah with a qaf. Yes, this is an individual that was very problematic. We have a couple verses of Quran that even speak of him. Now, it's an honor to be spoken by the Quran, uh, by, spoken of by the Quran. But if you're spoken of in a negative way, that's very bad. And so everyone knows this story about Walid. That Walid is the one who the Quran talks about when it says that when in ja'akum fasiqun bin nabi'in fatabayyanu if someone who is a sinful individual and has fisq and is fasiq comes to you with news about something or somebody first make sure verify 
before you do anything based on the news that that person gives you, right? So the story, I'm not going to get into it it's, it's, we don't, for, you know, in interest of time, but Walid bin Uqba came and lied about something once and there were about, lives were about to be lost as a result of the, the false report that he gives to the Mu'mineen and the Holy Prophet And the Qur'an says, no, don't listen to people if they're problematic people until you verify first. This Walid, the Qur'an has called a Fasiq. Yes, he's put as governor in Kufa and he prays a four rak'ah Salat al-Fajr. Everyone knows Salat al-Fajr is two rak'ah. So what is he thinking when he prays four rak'ah? The problem is he's not thinking. Why? Because he's not even sober. He's drunk. <laughs> he's drunk. He must have stayed up all night. I don't know what was going on. And he has had drink after drink and he just doesn't know what he's doing. And when he prays for rak'ah, the people, they object to that. And he says, would you like me to add more even? And this is a famous story of Walid. And no one really likes Walid too much, to be honest with all of you. But this is the important part. Who was the one pre preceding him? Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas is in Kufa and ruling Kufa. Yes? Uthman switches them up, brings his relative Walid bin Uqba instead of Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas. This is what we mean by the friends and relatives of Banu Umayyah slowly coming in. Now this part's interesting how it says when this Walid had come to replace Sa'ad, he has a conversation with him and he says, Wallah ma adri akista ba'dana am hamiqna ba'dak. I don't know what to say, like, are we just being, are you being smart, O oh, Sa'ad? You know, this grand Sahabi of Rasulullah Is it that you're being smart? Um, or is it that we're just being dumb? <laughs> like, why am I coming in your place? قال, uh, he says, like, he says, don't, don't get, don't, you know, he tells him not to continue his, his talking. He says, look, Sa'ad tells him, look, this is, all, this is what mulk and power and rulership is all about. One, in, the, in the beginning of the day, one person has it, then the day someone else has it. It's not about being smart or dumb, making mistakes. This is just how it works. Yeah, he tells him. In other words, the, there is no criteria for you coming right now. And then look what Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas ends with. And this is what exactly what the Shi'i school of thought actually says here in regards to which, in which direction the Khilafah went. He says, فَقَالَ سَعَدْ أَرَاكُمْ سَتَجْعَلُونَهَا mulka." He tells, he makes a very good point here, Sa'ad. He says to uh, Walid, he tells him, look, when it comes to mulk, yes, and monarchies and, and things like that, um, what you have is one day one person has it the next day someone else has it that's just how it is and he says but then the question might arise in someone's mind and say but this is not mulk this is khilafa yeah Sa'ad what are you talking about when you say this what do you mean when you say you are going to make you, this is mulk and it's going to be handed from one person to another just like that even in one day what you're saying is true, Sa'ad. If this, what we're talking about was mulk, but we're, we're not in mulk, we're in khilafah. But look what Sa'ad ends his conversation with, or this sentence of his with. He says, وَقَدْ أَرَاكُمْ سَتَجْعَلُونَهَا مُلْكَ 
this is how I see it, that you all, which probably here he's referring to the Bani Umayyah, you are going to change this into a monarchy soon. Yeah. And if that's it, that, and if that's how it's going to be, then yeah, anyone can come who is less qualified than someone else and replace them. No problem at all. And this is not so what some of the, this is not what the Shi'i school believes, but I've heard some of uh, some who are from the non, the, the non Shi'i school, they say that uh, I've actually seen this. Who tried to defend Imam Hussein in what he did? They say that yes, Imam Hussein was upset that the Khilafah has turned into a monarchy. He got upset that Muawiyah had given the Khilafah to his son, just like a monarch does, and that's why he rose. That's why he stood up against Yazid. Yeah, so we don't as Shia we don't believe that's the reason why he rose, or that's not the reason why he resisted giving bay'ah. But at the end of the day, there's a good point here that that the uh, that those who are not even Shia concede, at least some of them concede that yes, Khilafah turned into a monarchy, and Saad is saying the exact same thing here to Walid as well. And so people eventually complain to Uthman about Walid, and he's forced to change Walid with someone else. But who does he change him with? He replaces him with someone by the name of Sa'ad bin Al-As. And so this Sa'ad bin Al-As also is of Bani Umayyah and he also messes up in his own way. And so um, this is how, this is what's going on. When it comes to the people who are supposed to respect the Sharia of Allah, of Rasulullah sallallahu what we find is that, no, 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 they're given positions and power. Who else? What else is going on? For example, um, and Marwan bin Hakam also of the Bani Umayyah, who was expelled from Medina by the Prophet alongside his father, Al-Hakam. And so Hakam and his son Marwan are expelled from Medina. And during Abu Bakr's time and Umar's time, they are not allowed back into Medina. But then who is the one to bring them back? Well, his relative, their relative, uh, the third Khalifa, is the one to allow them back into the city. And this had caused an uproar. Now here I just recently actually saw one of the more extreme um, uh, scholars uh, saying that, uh, no, this is a lie and the third Khalifa didn't do that. But when you go around and you read about it, uh, you find that, no, no, it's not, it's not like only Shias are saying that Marwan was brought back into the city uh, by Uthman. There are others as well who are from the Sunni school of thought of their scholars as well that say, no, no, he, I mean, he, brought, he was brought back. And there's a point here to make Hopefully I'll make it in the end of our talk today. Uh, a very important point about getting the facts straight and then just judging based on the facts. All right, so this Marwan, he was expelled. I mean, he's seen, and his father, they are seen as, they are seen as examples of going against Allah and the Holy Prophet. This is after they were forced into Islam. This is after they, after the conquest of Mecca where they were forced to become Muslim and they come to Medina because the Prophet is there, yet still they're so bad that they're kicked out of Medina. So they, they represent breaking of the rules, breaking of the laws of God. Yet we see that this is not as important apparently and they are brought back in during that time. As I said, when you have a huge clan and tribe, yes, there's a lot of formalities that you're going to have. There are going to be a lot of relationships that you're going to have. You're going to try to maintain certain ties you know, even if someone's problematic, they're still your relative. You're going to still 
look them in the eye every now and then when you're conversing with them and you're going to feel bad that you didn't take care of them properly the way they would expect and so when you have all the power that might be what you actually do take care of them but for us uh, for, for uh, the Muslims the, what the Muslim Ummah understands is that everything is on one side and Allah's laws and your relationship with God is what matters that's what takes precedence so the rest is secondary compared to that that is the criteria <sighs> examples of now those were examples of people who really just didn't care about God's laws but then there are some who just weren't qualified. What was their qualification? Well, they were a relative of the Khalifa. Or either that or they were a Bani Umayyah related distantly or closely to uh, the Khalifa. So for example, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. He's a grand Sahabi of Rasulullah And he is the governor of Basra. When the third Khalifa comes to power, he removes Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Who does he put instead of him? A young person that was his brother through Rada'ah through nursing uh, by the name of Abdullah bin Amr, 25 years old. And there's some interesting, interesting things they say about Abdullah bin Amr because he was so young. And some even said less than that. I actually saw somewhere where it said he was 16 years old. Now, I don't know how true that would be, but you know, the, rec the reports are different. But 25 is even young for, uh, for you to replace Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, that grand Sahabi, with him. He removed Amr bin al-As in Egypt. Whoa! Amr bin al-As is a person who embraced Islam uh, before the conquest of Mecca even, by a few years. And so, although the Shi'i school really does not like uh, this uh, individual because of his, especially because of his role in the Battle of Safin and his relationship with Muawiyah and the help he provided to Muawiyah. But at the end of the day, no one can uh, uh, ignore the fact that, okay, he's seen as a grand Sahabi as well. And so, he is known for taking over Egypt and conquering Egypt. He's the one who actually suggested to the Khalifa before um, uh, the third Khalifa to you know, allow me to go and take over Egypt. And he eventually did, and he's the governor there. And so, he is removed by the second Khalifa, and his brother from Rada'a, the, the Khalifa's brother from Rada'a takes his place. So let me correct what I said in the beginning. Uh, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari was replaced by the cousin of the third Khalifa. Amr bin al-As was replaced by the brother from Rada'a and nursing of the third Khalifa. Yeah. You don't mess around with a person like Amr bin al-As, brothers and sisters. <laughs> you can't mess with him. He's smart. He, they call him Dahiyatul Arab, the clever one of the Arab. Yeah, he's the one who, who, who saved Muawiyah from the situation he was in in Safin. And so these are just examples. But like, you, if you ask, okay, well, what qualification does the brother of the third Khalifa have versus Amr bin al-As? What you find is that, yeah, he's the, he's the third Khalifa's brother by Rada'ah. That's, that's all you find really. And so he gets in so much trouble in Egypt and causes so much trouble in Egypt that, that they say one of the reasons why the people of Egypt even revolted against the third Khalifa was because of this replacement of Amr bin al-As. Yeah. And so we have in Ibn Hanbal, the book of Ibn Hanbal, just to highlight how much the third Khalifa really liked his uh, relatives and this family tree of Banu Umayyah, 
there is a report in Ibn Hanbal. I didn't get to check the what the muhaqqiqin say about the sanad of this report, but this report is in the Musnad of Ahmad bin Hanbal, where it says that Uthman said, لَوْ أَنَّ بِيَدِي مَفَاتِيحَ الْجَنَّةِ لَأُعْطِيتُهَا or لَأَعْطَيْتُهَا بَنِي أُمَيَّةَ حَتَّى يَدْخُلُوا مِنْ عِنْدِي آخِرِهِمْ If I had the keys to Jannah, right? So it seems that he has the keys to Khilafah in this world and he's letting them do what they need to do and what they want to do. And he's liking it, the fact that he, he's gotten a lot of his family and a lot of his family tree involved in the Muslim empire. Yes, he, it seems like he's liking this. He says, if I had the keys to Jannah even, I would give those keys to Banu Umayyah so that they can all enter Jannah as well. And this is how he looks at Bani Umayyah. And the people, they're getting upset more and more because they're seeing one after another these things happening. Another story I want to share with uh, everybody is that he would expel sometimes and it's just his relationship all in all with some of the companions of Rasulullah. Some of the really uh, senior, grand companions of Rasulullah Now before I get into this, I will say this again. You will find some of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah, they will dismiss this entirely. We have to acknowledge this and, uh, and accept that it's not something unanimously agreed on. But there are so many reports in, cer in certain books that some of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah have come to this conclusion that, yeah, these things happened, but let us justify them now. Yeah, let us explain them and why these things would happen. And sometimes they will say, and this is the, this is the detail that I wanted to share with all of you, that I said I'll leave for later, that look, sometimes you just want to get rid of the equation altogether. Sometimes you acknowledge the equation is there. You try to solve it to the best of your ability. You see and you find that scholars of the Sunni school of thought, some of them, they'll dismiss all of these altogether. It's their right to do so. There are some who will say, no, 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 no. Let's be realistic. And it's pretty interesting when you watch these things or you read them. They say, look, let us acknowledge, let us accept, let us be honest that these things happened. It's proven to us that these things happened. But let us understand also that this was an ijtihad. Yeah? A judgment that that person had. For example, the third Khalifa had in a certain situation and scenario. And so let us just say that, okay, he was mistaken, Allah will forgive. Not only will Allah will forgive, but Allah will give them one ajr, one reward, because at least they tried. Others say, no, 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 let's just dismiss it all together. Okay, at the end of the day, the Shi'i historians have been convinced regarding certain matters. One of those is the relationship that the third Khalifa had with other companions. The other companions weren't too happy. I mean, Amr bin al-As, when he's set aside from Egypt, when Sa'd bin Abi Waqqas is, is replaced, when Abu Musa al-Ash'ari is replaced, they, they, they get upset. They're human beings, they get upset. But it, it goes further than that. There's more than just replacing them, taking them, taking power away from them. There are stories of you know, physical abuse that happened. Um, for example, to Ammar bin Yasir, in which the, Khalifa, the third Khalifa himself was directly involved. Him and his, the, whoever else was with him, his guards, and how they pinned Ammar bin Yasir and how he was uh, struck 
by the third Khalifa. Now, as I said, some dismiss this altogether. They say lies, lies, lies. Others will say, and you see this as well, they say, look, this happened, it was a mistake, you know. I mean, it was the spur of the moment, you know, he, he lost control, he got angry or whatever it was, and this is what happened. We have case, we have more than one case like this. So, speaking of this relationship of the companions that, uh, with the third Khalifa, you'll find certain things that happened, they didn't get along too much. I want to share one story in particular, go through some of those details of how it went between the third Khalifa and that individual, and look at it from a Shi'i perspective, and also look at it from a, uh, let's call it a more, uh, a less moderate uh, Sunni perspective as well, and see what the difference is, just to highlight one example of how they wouldn't really get along. So we have, regarding Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, that very, very famous, very senior companion of Rasulullah that we talked about before, about how we have hadith that there's no one more honest and truthful than him. There's a story of how, there, there's the story of how Abu Dhar al-Ghifari passed away from this dunya, from this world. We have the Shi'i perspective, and then we have a few different Sunni perspectives as well. Okay. When we talk about the Shi'i perspective, what we see is that there were, there were arguments that took place, disagreements that really would um, get very heated actually between the third Khalifa and Abu Dhar. And so Abu Dhar eventually, when he's in Sham, he has problems with Muawiyah, he's in Medina, he has problems with the third Khalifa. The third Khalifa expels him from Medina and he's sent to a place called Rabada. And that is a barren land, nothing going on there. And he eventually dies there. And there's no one there even to do ghusl and takfeen of him, to shroud him and bury him properly. And his wife was telling him this. She says, I'm worried for you because you have no one to take care of you if you pass away. And he says, no, don't worry, there will be some. And it turns out that um, when he passes away and there is no one to take care of him, a caravan happens to be going by that had people like Malik al-Ashtar and others in it that took care of him and his burial. But this is what the, how the story, what the story looks like from a Shi'i perspective. And um, of course when I say Shi'i perspective, not that we have uh, Shi'i history books that we go to versus Sunni history books. No, we all go to the same sources. It's just which parts of these sources the Shi'i historians will take based on the clues and evidence they feel are supporting a certain narrative. And then also the Sunni school will go to the same books, almost the same books, and, uh, and, and see, how they, uh, see how they see the whole picture. Um, anyway, what happens is that this Abu Dhar, he, when he is uh, sent out of Medina, the Shi'i school, the Shi'i historians, they say that the third Khalifa had said that no one is supposed to see, bid him farewell either and like accompany him to the outskirts of the city. But Imam Ali and a few others, they still go ahead and do that. And in Nahj al-Balagha, we have, um, about, it's about a paragraph long that the Imam is speaking to Abu Dhar as he bids him farewell um, and tells him that Allah is, has the back of those who uh, have taqwa 
and listen to Allah and carry out His commands and so on. Anyway, it's an interesting uh, part of Nahj al-Balagha and it's, uh, it's touching as well and can bring tears to one's eyes of what happened to this grand Sahabi of Rasulullah But I want to share with you now what we find in Sahih al-Bukhari. It seems, brothers and sisters, that when it comes to history and the accounts of history, if there are history books that are relating an incident, if Bukhari also has an account of that, that will take precedence for sure. It is only when you don't find something in Bukhari or Muslim that you now look at other books of history and if they have reliable accounts in them based on the standards of the Sunni school of thought, then you go by those. Practically what I've noticed is that this is how it works there. In other words, if you have something that the history books are saying and then something that Sahih Bukhari says that might go against it, of course Sahih Bukhari will take precedence. In this case, the history books have a lot to say about Abu Dhar al-Ghifari and his expulsion from Medina. But at the same time, what do we have? We have, uh, we have a riwayah in al-Bukhari. And it goes like this. Oh, I'm not going to read the Arabic actually. I'll just explain it to you. And one of the scholars, um, one of those more extreme you know, uh, ones, he explains it like this, based on the account of Bukhari. He says, look, Abu Dhar was in uh, Sham um, and he was, had issues with Muawiyah and Abu Dhar had a, a fatwa for himself that he believed that if you have enough money to cover yourself and then you have extra money, that extra money you can't use anymore for yourself. If you have enough to cover yourself, the extra doesn't belong to you, you have to, it's wajib to give it as sadaqah to the muslimin or to the fuqara of the muslimin, to those who are in need. Now here, Abu Dhar has this fatwa. And we have a verse in the Quran, الَّذِينُ يَكْنِزُونَ الذَّهَبَ وَالْفِضَّةَ Until the end of the verse. That those who are um, uh, amassing uh, gold and silver, that they're in big trouble. And uh, the Quran really speaks very uh, harshly about these individuals. Abu Dhar says, I had, in, in Al-Bukhari it says this, that I had an issue with Muawiyah on this fatwa and regarding this verse. I was telling him that you can't, you can't have this much wealth and then use it for other things like Al-Qubbatul, uh, or uh, uh, excuse me, Masjidul Qasr al-Khadra, for example. Building uh, a, a palace like Qasr al-Khadra. You can't have that. Muawiyah was of the opinion that no, we can. And this verse is not talking about us, it's talking about others. Okay. So eventually he gets on Muawiyah's nerves. Muawiyah sends a letter to Uthman in Medina. He says, look, do something about this guy. So Uthman summons him to Medina, says here, stay in Medina, don't worry about Muawiyah. And don't speak about this matter to the people either. That you believe that if you have this much wealth and it covers you, the rest of your wealth doesn't belong to you and you have to give it away in sadaqah. Don't, you don't have to talk about it. He says, you're my Amir, I'm not going to talk about it. And so what happens is that after a while, the people find out that, oh, Abu Dhar is in town, Abu Dhar is in town. Let's go see what happened. Why is he, why is he here from Sham? And they start asking him questions and asking him what he thinks about this matter 
of wealth and accumulating wealth. And so the second fatwa that Abu Dhar had, another fatwa that he had was that if people ask you about knowledge, it is wajib for you to share it. You cannot do kitman al-ilm and hide knowledge from people when they ask. So he says to the Uthman, I'm not going to initially speak about this matter, but when people are asking him, yes, when people are asking him, he says, I can't not answer because Allah has said you have to share knowledge whenever people seek it. And so he starts telling people about what, what his view was of Muawiyah and what Muawiyah does. Now, here problems are starting to arise in Medina. Uthman tells him, look, we got to do something. Like you can, you're causing problems here too. And Abu Dhar says, I know, but I can't not say anything. Send me outside of Medina even. And so with his own choice, yes, voluntarily, Abu Dhar expels himself from Medina and goes to the outside of Medina, about, I think they say, 40 kilometers outside of Medina in Rabada. And that's where he passes away. So you can see how different these two narratives are, brothers and sisters. And you have this throughout history in all of these accounts and all the different things that we've talked about so far. You'll find these also explanations and I'm going to call it I'm going to call it a little bit of an extreme explanation because even this explanation that I just gave half of those details are not in the account of Bukhari and the and the narration that he has there um, he only talks about how you know he he felt like he has to go and he went it doesn't talk about uh, the the two fatwas that he had and the two opinions that he had maybe somewhere else this has been discussed I'm not aware of it but all in all in this account we don't have it um, um, that's perfectly fine once again because if you're a scholar, yes, you have an opinion, that's your opinion. And that will be respected as an opinion. But you can see, brothers and sisters, how different these two opinions are in this regard. And so Abu Dar al-Ghifari is one example of what happened to some of the grand Sahaba of Rasulullah during the time of the third Khalifa, Ammar bin Yasir and others as well, brothers, others and others and others. There are stories out there. The Shi'i school of thought says that this is also one of the reasons why what happened to the Khalifa happened. Eventually, the people got fed up. But finally and lastly, what we have is the matter of the public treasury, the wealth that was distributed amongst Banu Umayyah. I'm going to leave that for our next lecture. That is what I would say that might be the main thing or one of the two or three main reasons why the people were pushed to the edge and eventually couldn't take it anymore. And they felt like they need to make a change and bring it and, and do something differently. Um, the wealth that was distributed amongst the Banu Umayyah, that is also something that contributed to this great, great element of the assassination of Uthman and how that contributed to others coming to power and other problems arising as a result of his assassination that we'll discuss inshallah in our future lectures. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu ala al-Husayn wa ala Ali ibn al-Husayn wa ala awlad al-Husayn wa ala ashab al-Husayn. Wassalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.